Do it again. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world. You're listening to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling. A martini, shaken, not stirred. Don't try and church it up, son. You can't handle the truth. I am the picture that got small. Your first one's on us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Drinks, jokes, and storytelling. I'm your host, Mark Rigadonna, and with me as always... Richie Byrne, your producer, Soul Joel. Today we got a special guest. Very special. Very special oh, guest. Oh, it's always yes. special. <laughs> always a special guest. <laughs> today we have a mundane guest almost today. Almost the we, most famous guest we've we had. We almost take a break from the everyday with today's guest. You don't. It doesn't have the quite same ring. Some people like wow factor. Nondescript like... guest on today's show. Nothing really special about it. We like the, our audience to go... Hmm. Hmm. All right. I will tell you. <laughs> well, let's introduce him. Right, so, uh, your friend, your host interest. of his own show on Sirius XM, um, one of my favorite comedians, oh, one shucks. of my favorite people to hang around. Oh, he's, he's an actor, he's a writer, he has a ton of amazing, cool stuff going on. Ladies I should have sent a bio, sorry. Uh, <laughs> 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 Something you'll learn really quickly with uh, our show is uh, we don't do any research. Oh, that's no. good. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. We, wow. don't, we don't like research. So you're that's just sitting here waiting for your White House jobs then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> John Bugelstein. Thank John you, gentlemen. Oh. Yes. I will uh, tell you that you and I don't know each other. We're just meeting. Uh, I'm very excited that you're going to be on because of, we're going to talk Beatles. Oh, cool. But I also saw you in a TV show uh, that has not aired yet. <laughs> oh. A little Radio Gods A little Radio action. Gods, which is Mark's TV show, Mark and, and Vinny Nardiello. And you were phenomenal playing a complete asshole. Oh, I thank you. Know, <laughs> thank you. I mean, my God. Yeah. I'm where, a, where did you research? I'm, I'm, I'm method douche yeah. is what I do. And um, so what I do is I spend, uh, I spend about... 12, 13 years in character, really uh-huh. learning how to embody the role in all my day-to-day relationships well, and showed. burning professional showed, contacts. And then I show up and I just kind of like let that guy take over. Yes, I don't know where I end and the chode begins. <laughs> well, the, he's like the opposite of us. We said we don't do any research. He's all Because I remember reading the script before you cast it. Yeah. And the character was named Fugelsang at that time. <laughs> <laughs> they all just called him a chode. When I got, what, was the, what was the first guy's name? Marvin. Marvin, Marvin and, and the chode. Because all of these, you know, horrible... Ra- Gator and the bear. <laughs> <laughs> with right, like, well, with like, Lenny and the tumor. You know, it's always like the... the and no. the... Blank, yeah, it's always... Yeah. Know, right. yeah. I, I sat lame guy was, and really profoundly lame guy. Yeah. The car that you purchased in the pilot uh, is no longer with us. Oh, the, the the orange thing? The orange McLaren. The McLaren. What happened? Yeah. It exploded in New York City. The very car that like I got to drive around? Yeah. It's got it, like uh, great DeLorean doors. John's been trying to explode in New York City for years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> car it caught on fire it. and uh, really? burnt well, to the ground. I, you know what? It was wow. your idea to let Billy Joel borrow it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so. Unlike Radio Gods, it caught on fire. Oh, that was a lovely <laughs> script. I really enjoyed going out to Jersey uh, when it was really cold uh, and hanging out at a car dealership all day. Uh, but to be on a set all day with like your team of people who are all cool and then Rick Overton uh, Paul Provenza and yourself it was so much fun really really fun the the worst part about it is is usually when you're on a set you're bored to death and then you have to shoot but with how bad our script is the exact opposite yeah the 
the magic ended once the, once you called action, the magic kind of really petered boring. away. Yeah, I mean, none of it translates to screen, but boy, was it a fun, fun God, shoot. Green room was oh, amazing. we had fun on that shoot, let me tell you. Gili, that was a fun movie to work on, can I tell you? Um, <laughs> Uh, I can't like wait it. to see it. I love I love your scripts and I love what you did and it's it was really a, a great satire of a once great industry. I also <laughs> have a, a, the next project. I, I really am excited. I want you to read it. Oh, terrific! As I do, so, I just had a my my pitches haven't gone that well. Um, I was just recently uh, pitching uh, again. Another network turned down my reality show based on uh, the Donner Party. Not just it didn't go. Didn't go. <laughs> um, uh, I I was recently. I, I thought Bill Cosby would be open to this, and I pitched him. Uh, <laughs> The all hardcore gangster rap version of Kids Say the Darnest Things, which is called uh, My Little Homies Be Talking Some Fucked Up Shit. He did not respond. Um, Disney, I was. Well, he's a these are my busy pitches. Right well, now. you know, but he needs a hit, is all I'm saying. He needs the income. Those lawyers don't pay for themselves. Disney, I, I, I pitched them my, my gangster rap version of Winnie the Pooh, which is called uh, uh, Tigga Please. Uh, <laughs> did not respond. This whole thing where and like, before the show we were like Piglet's what are we going Tigga what Tigga what <laughs> um, you know I just I, I, I just now pitched uh, to German TV I, I'm, I'm trying to get Werner Herzog to do a, a German dark remake of the Brady Bunch called Das Bunch um, <laughs> again these are like ideas that are ahead of their time and these straights out there uh, you know so I just do my other stuff I just did a, a tour with the uh, San Francisco uh, straight men's chorus I don't know if you've heard us before um, just a <laughs> bunch of guys who we just no no we're just guys who happen to be we don't like you know shove our straight down your throat you know like we don't only sing in straight parts of town we just have a Sammy Hagar cover album uh, you know <laughs> And then I have my magazine job. I'm at, I do a I, I do a, uh, a website uh, and magazine for um, Reverse Psychology Today. Have you have you have you seen Reverse Psychology, <laughs> dudes? You have got to read Reverse Psychology Today. It is smart. It is insightful. It is. Cl you know what? No, it's not for you. I take it back. You don't want to read it. Don't do not go to my site and read anything. Thank you. <laughs> not for you. That's all. So I'm busy with what I'm saying with lots of things in yeah. the hopper, lots of projects. I'm working on. That's. That's great, and we like we, to start every show with a uh, we, drink of choice. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. The jokes have been covered. Yeah, we, we've <laughs> Sorry. covered jokes. I feel this is. I, take I don't take a please. <laughs> Once Wait, you go hack. <laughs> that's one of those jokes. When you hear it, you go, "God, why didn't I think of that?" <laughs> you know, that's just really. Well, important. I stole it from Carlos Mencia, so God knows who wrote it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Well done. <laughs> I think we can wrap this up. That's yeah, as I many mean, laughs as you can fit. Jeez. The, uh, no, but if, if you could have anything you like, uh, we're out and we're uh, out and about town. You can have any drink you like. What What's your drink of preference? Well, gee, that's interesting. Um, cheap red wine. That's yeah. always good for me. But uh, uh, but now now organic cheap red wine is better. No headaches. Uh, I, I guess I would say like a. Uh, a, a you know, uh, uh, gin and tonic is. I'm pretty. I'm pretty yeah, basic. Gin and yeah. tonic. It's, you know, That's we were just talking earlier. We're not I'm told. I'm told that uh, vodka and soda water is the most um, low calorie hard drink yes. you can have if you yes. want to get fucked up and and not you know it's worry about beautiful. your chins. Like yeah. So so a <laughs> fan of that as well. But I mean, you know, come on. It's New York. A red wine and a pizza, and I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I, I, me, I like everything. And I keep them coming. So Zima is a really <laughs> your, your thing. <laughs> Only with a Skittle in it. 
<laughs> I, what are your What are your drinks of choice, gentlemen? I'm a Scotch guy. Nice. Yeah, I like it. I, I like, like whiskey. Nice McAllen's. It's weird. Uh, angry balls. It's like uh, uh, an angry, angry orchard with fireball inside oh, no, of it. Oh, oh, you meant a drink. Uh, <laughs> that's why I'm the producer. Back to you, John. No worries. <laughs> he, he actually said it seriously. Listen, man. No. Angry balls. My uncle had angry balls in the war. I, I understand. It's... We're with you, man. This ribbon, right now, you see, this is for angry balls. I, I, I pitched it. It got denied. <laughs> So uh, the other thing that we do during our show is uh, we have a joke. Now, after shows as a comic, people always tend to come up to you and go, Hey, got, got a, a joke. joke for you. Oh, no, and they're right. usually racist. Yeah. Usually racist, sexist, so I listen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I write them down. Yeah, I write them down. I use them in my act. Um, but uh, do you have a joke that if somebody said to you, like, Hey, you're a comedian, give me a joke. Do you have, like, uh, Well, that, I love that you ask this because this is, like, the... Comedians only are the only group that understand what this is like. To have mm -hmm. someone who meets you randomly demand you, you display your craft on demand, mm -hmm. like right in the because no one else does this. No one's. Oh, you're a heart surgeon. Suture my aorta. Like right. it doesn't. You know. <laughs> hey, I brought a guitar. Hey, yeah. You you're go. a Republican senator. Deny my family affordable health care. Like what? <laughs> it doesn't come up. <laughs> so I used to have this line. I had this line, this guy once said, this guy once said, you know, tell me a joke, tell me a joke. And I'm just like, uh, the National Dyslexic Theater Company presents Annie Get Your Nug. <laughs> and he just stared at me. It's about pot. And now finally oh, I said, God. I said, do you not know what dyslexia is? And he said, bruh, I don't even know what a nug is. So, <laughs> oh, bruh, God. A nut could be pot, so I, I would like to see any. I hadn't even thought about that. They could just know. be smoking <laughs> up on stage. Well, that ruins the dyslexia part of the joke, but if you're baked enough, it doesn't really matter. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's always hard. Like, I mean, you know, Jackie the Joke Man is, is the best at this in the right. world, and, and I mean, I've, I've, I've stolen so many jokes from him that he stole from long ago. You know, like, right. I mean, I mean, you know, when I was 12, my favorite joke was uh, two nuns on walking down the street, and a guy jumped out and flashed them. You know this one? No. One nun had a stroke. The other wouldn't touch it. Um... <laughs> There it is. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> we, you fulfilled your obligation. Let me tell you, here's your best bad joke. Uh, Irish guy. Those, are, Those are always where they start good. Well, I was thinking, everyone's drinking. So Irish guy is, uh, Seamus is stumbling around. And by the way, I hope all of the, one thing liberals and conservatives have in common in this country, uh, we're addicted to umbrage. Um, the umbrage gasm out there, so please be offended by this. Uh, Irish guy walking around, and uh, he stumbles over something, looks down, and it's a lamp, and he picks up the lamp and rubs it, and a genie comes out. Not usually in this part of the globe, but they didn't go with it. And the genie says, thank you. You have saved me. Uh, I will now grant you two wishes. Anything you want. And Seamus is like, ah, anything I want, then? Anything you want, my son, you, win. you will have two wishes. Because the first thing I want to ask for is, I want you to give me a bottomless mug of bear of Guinness, and it never runs out. And Jeannie says, okay, boom, there you go. And Seamus can't believe it. He takes it, glug, glug, glug. my God, it's still, it's still full. And he's drinking and drinking, glug, 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 like 20 minutes, glug, glug, glug. it never runs out. It's the greatest thing in the world. You've saved me. It's the most beautiful gift of all time. And Jeannie says, well, what's your second wish? Ah, give me another one of these. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know what? That was informational. Here's I'm like, I, if I first of all, wish, I'm incredibly I'm impressed by the Irish accent. Yeah, you nailed that, Wonderful. by the way. Oh, thank Wonderful. you. I saw in the name of the father seven times. Second of all. <laughs> I like his foot on the gas. What I love the about. The whole time. For the fuck's sake, Doc. What I love about Irish jokes is it's the only 
you can still say Irish guy drinking, but and get away with it. No yeah. one seems no to be offended. Gets. Well, you're offended by everything else in the world, but we all agree that the Irish are drunks. <laughs> yeah, the white privilege has its privileges, <laughs> yes, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Now, John, how did you, you were an actor. Did you start as an actor, or did you mm-hmm. do comedy first? I started as an actor. Yeah. Started out as an actor, and yeah. I, I believe you and I have the same kind of philosophy that it was, I want to do film, so then I have money to do theater. Yes. That was the starting out goal. Sure, yeah. I mean, well, we all do the work you have to do to subsidize the work you, 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 you want to do. And, um, and and for me, it, it sort of uh, downgraded quickly from, like, I'll do film to do theater to I will do uh, crappy TV hosting so I can do anything, so I can not starve. That, that's what it went to. It went from I want to do film so I can afford to do theater to I want to do mediocre TV so I can afford to not be homeless. Which that was is, my... Which cracks me up because you, you, down, you downplay that you were the host of America's Funniest People. Uh, home videos. Home videos. Yes. I would kill that. That's one of my favorite things. No, it was nice. It was a really oh no no lovely. I, I a lovely bunch of people. They 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 asked me to come out and do it, and and it was all weird because I'd never watched this show before, and I was working as a VH1 VJ at the time, and uh, they they had a casting director in New York, and I was doing a shoot in Washington Square, and they said she she wants to see you, and I'm like I'm busy, and they said well she's she's staying late, I'm like I'm shooting, they said well she's going to get a later flight just to see you, I thought ah, so I went up and I I did it. And and I just made fun of the show the whole time. And then they flew me out to L.A. It's <laughs> always the and way. They put me in a room with Daisy Fuentes, and I walked out and I just made fun of the show the whole time. You just played hard to get. Like this is no big deal. Not I, hard I, to not, get. Oh, no, I, no, yeah, not I even don't hard care. to get. Like yeah. Yeah. I don't care. This, right, 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 right. This sucks. Right. Which yeah. Is, I mean, it's it's awesome, and I love. And but then as soon as you get the job, everything you do in the audition has to stop, and we need you to uh, uh, smile more. Have this fake tan, wear this suit, and uh, no face. jokes. Action. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? 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 It's so pretty much everything, action. Everything we hired you for, don't do. Don't do that. I oh, mean, that's God. sort of the first, first rule of TV hosting. You really? know, nine times out of ten, they don't know what they want. You give them an idea of what they want, and then they evolve Change. beyond you to what they want. <laughs> and, you know. I'm going to be a skinny black guy in my next. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, but it was a fun, sh- it was only supposed to be for half a season and it wound up being like three times longer than that. I did two years on it and then I was, I was, I was done, but I had a great time doing it. I Very did, nice people. Uh, yeah. And it's just such a, it's a silly, lighthearted thing. Yeah. I like, was in my twenties and I was too young to like be silly and lighthearted about it. Like yeah, I didn't know how going, to just be. I'm an artist. I can't I, Yeah, exactly. This. I didn't know how to just be breezy and have fun. And, and you know, like my agents convinced me, oh no, no, no. Hosting America's Funniest Home Videos will open the door to doing tons of Merchant Ivory costume dramas. You have to just, just understand that. So I, I flew out there believing that, but I learned a lot from the experience, and uh, and and it taught me, you know, what I did and didn't want to do. That's uh, that's just so insane. Well, now take us on the the journey. You get done doing this, and you start doing film. You start doing TV. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I did film and TV before then, too. I mean, I've done uh, lots of uh, small roles in movies you've never seen. And that's really <laughs> the, where I've staked my, my ground. Yeah. But um, How did you get involved with VH1? That was from doing stand-up. Uh, I was doing a cabaret show because I thought, when I was starting out, I thought, let me try doing an hour a month at a cabaret rather than doing, like, uh, you know, 20 sets a week for five minutes in clubs and hope I get seen. By doing uh, an hour-long show every month in a cabaret, 
A, like I said, how I want to do it every month, and I said, how um, how much do I have to charge for tickets? And they said, well, uh, we'd keep two dollars, and you keep anything above two dollars. And I said, then I charge two dollars because I don't want to make money. I just want fa- right. to packed rooms. So I I was promoting it near NYU, and I just would fill the room with NYU students. This was back when they didn't check IDs, and <laughs> um, and I was doing an hour of material like sketches, characters, monologues, stand up, all kinds of stuff, and the cabaret press wound up giving me a lot of reviews. And wow. so I wound up having a press kit by doing this. And then I got the Daily News and the, and the New York Post and all these newspapers to come down. They're, they used to have cabaret reviewers. They used to have newspapers. And when they had these things called newspapers, they had cabaret <laughs> critics. So I was able to build up a press kit. It's like a blog, but on paper. Yeah. And so one of my bits was I, I used to do a bit about Michael Bolton and uh, making fun of VH1 at the time in the 90s. And, and uh, I took a Michael Bolton video and uh, broke it down, explored the use of allegory, Kenny G is a Christ <laughs> figure. Um, and VH1 <laughs> came and saw me and said, hey, we're relaunching our channel. You want to come and be our funny guy? And so I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was running a dorm for NYU as a day job. Absolutely. Uh, and then I started, but it wound up becoming my broadcasting graduate school because I was uh, the only person there that was really a big classic rock guy. They were hiring a lot of models and top 40 DJs, and right. I was the funny guy who knew like every you know, Beatles B-side or whatever. And right. so it wound up leading to me doing... Um, you know, interviewing Paul McCartney and George Harrison and Bruce Springsteen and Robbie Robertson and Pete Townsend and John Fogarty oh and you know, meeting all these legends and... Uh, and, and learning how to, being a very bad interviewer on the job and getting better as time went on. Can you believe that you actually got to interview all these guys just because we tell dick jokes, basically? Yeah, I mean, it was crazy because I loved the Beatles so much and I loved uh, classic rock. Like, I was never around popular music most of my childhood growing up. My parents had had a lives where they were sort of uh, outside of popular culture for most of their adult lives. So growing up like show tunes was really um, as, as hip as it got. And I love I love show tunes. I love Broadway musicals and all that. But um, when I finally got to college and I began getting into music, uh, I, I just, it was Dylan, the Beatles. And you went to NYU? Yeah. And it was Dylan, the Beatles, Patti Smith, Van Morrison, right. you know, Bob Marley. And um, so my geekdom actually served me better than my comedy. And uh, so, yeah, it, it taught me how to do that. It took me a long time to learn how to appreciate that. But the good thing was after, like, I, 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 did, I once did Paul McCartney and George Harrison on different continents in the same week. Wow. Oh my God. And after that, you're not really intimidated by celebrity anymore. You couldn't possibly yeah. be. It's yeah. so rare that, like, I'm actually, you know, like, like nervous. I actually kind of just get relaxed because you realize these people at this stature hate nervous motherfuckers and so mm-hmm. you get so relaxed that's because that's all they see yeah which is funny uh, what's his name I said out live did the Farley did the interview with yeah, Paul McCartney like, it was so brilliant because I'm sure Paul had to deal with that all the time course, yeah, all the know? time and you see it when you're hanging out with these guys because I work with Paul a couple of times and you see these people come up and you know, th- wh- why do you think Bob Dylan's such a freak? I mean, when you're worshipped as a god in your own lifetime, mm-hmm. and then it goes on for decades, you either become an asshole, you become a, a weird guy, or you just develop a grace and learn to just glide through it. And that's what McCartney does. Yeah. Um, for Dylan, it was very hard in the 60s. He went up and hit out in Woodstock. He couldn't stand it. Yeah. And you, you, you lose a lot of respect for people, too. I mean, you see how people act. Um, but that's why I also respect people who can be graceful about it and and you know like garth brooks was someone who i wasn't a fan of but we did this live special and when it was done i swear to god the guy really did stay in our studio 
and shake the hand of every audience member and crew member who wanted to shake his hand. Really? And I stayed with him, and it was that's like awesome. midnight by the time he and I left the studio, and I was like, "Wow, that's that's it, man." Like I'm, you know, not a fan per se of of, of his songs, but I I really respected that he had the grace and humility to realize that without these people, I'm he's nothing. got nothing. So yeah. you know, um, and but, I, that's true. Not many get that. Yeah. You know, or forget it once they're they're there. But my, my goal was to have, like, the most eclectic career, which is to say the weirdest career. So, like, I, you know, I've been murdered on CSI. I've done off-Broadway solo theater. <laughs> I, I've, I'm a Drama League nominee. I've done uh, uh, sitcoms. I've done one-hour dramas. I've done independent films you've never seen. And I've done movies like Coyote Ugly you wish you'd never seen. I've done... Um, <laughs> I've hosted pilots. Uh, I've hosted, you know, reality shows, talk shows. I've hosted. Uh, yeah, I was in that for like one scene. I, I've I've been a VJ. I've I've hosted pop culture shows. Uh, uh, you know, CNN mornings. I I got Mitt Romney's advisor to call him an etch a sketch, and I'm I, I made national news. I've done stand up for the troops overseas. I host a radio show on Sirius XM. Like I I I'm sort of just like an experience junkie, yeah. and I just want to um, try to be mediocre in as many disciplines as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm able to. Well, but this being said, now if you could do anything right now, somebody handed you the golden ticket and said, for the next year, you can do anything you Just, want. You know, dramatic acting on a quality, um, quality one-hour drama, really. Yeah. Or, or, or you know, a or bunch this of films. podcast. Well, that's. I mean, he that's obvious. That mark. Yeah. <laughs> Second, but no. Wish. I mean, I would, I would just like to. Yeah, I would just like to go and and, and play characters uh, and and try to. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my first love. So now, when you it. first started getting into it, who did you look up to? As an actor or as a comedian? Yeah, actor. I mean, you Whose know. Whose career would you kill to have played those well, roles? Well, when I was a kid, it was all Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, the whole angry 70s anti-punk, I mean, punk anti-hero was, was, was my model. Yeah. Um, by the time I was a teenager and had seen Unbearable Lightness of Being, it was all Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, and uh, But as I get older, I admire more and more the character actors who, um, who just behave. Gene Hackman, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. I mean, the guys who are so comfortable in their skin. Uh, Richie, who would you like? If Morgan you Freeman, you know, just there. show up and just, just, just talk and just behave just and you're there. <laughs> I mean, Hackman is just like, you know, amazing watching him in anything. Yeah, I agree. I think those kind of, I mean, that that's what Gandolfini wanted to be. He just wanted to be that actor that no one really knew. Guy. I saw I him mean, in a play when I first moved to L.A. There was like 12 people in the audience. And Sean Penn had produced it. It was about an old Protestant man in Ireland and an old Catholic woman who fell in love right. visiting their kids at the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And he played like this bigoted Irish cop who hated that his father was dating a Catholic woman or a, 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 a Protestant woman. And he, Gandolfini in an Irish accent. And like 12 people in the audience at the Odyssey Theater on Olympic. And I was like, oh, that's the guy from True Romance. And then right, you know, right, a yeah. year later, he's Tony he's Soprano. Tony Soprano. Wow. Yeah. God. Yeah, and uh, apparently when he went in for the audition, he bombed, and he went home, and he was so mad, and he called his agent. He said, "You got to get me another audition," and they brought him back in, and and he nailed it. But his whole—I saw an interview with him where he said, "I just wanted to be the guy in True Romance." Everyone goes, "Oh, that's the guy in True Romance." Yeah, he's in um, Crimson Tide as well. He's like a great, scary bad guy in Crimson Tide. I I didn't know that. Get Shorty as well. He's in Get Shorty. Get Shorty is yeah. But you're right. I know what you mean about Hackman. There's a there's a uh, just being there's a there. grace, a class to Hackman that yeah. you when you see him in any movie, any role, it, it, and it, it you know you think about the fact that he lived he was roommates with Dustin Hoffman back in the '60s, yeah. and and Hoffman blew up, <coughs> and Hackman was just always playing these great roles. He's in and just basically 
one day you woke up and realized, wow, Gene Hackman's a huge star. I mean, he, you know he has I mean? two Oscars, you know what I mean? That's you what, know, but yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, there was never that one movie that... Well, Bonnie and Clyde, I think, was his yeah, big breakthrough. But even, but and then Popeye, I mean, I was a baby, but like Popeye Doyle, you know, yeah. French Connection is... Well. Yeah, but it was... But you're right, he was he never was like, like leading man guy, yeah, you know? He, he just, he just and, was a great... just, oh, just a tremendous... It's a great actor to go. That's someone you'd want to be. Here's know? the good news about him too. Uh, I got to see him on Broadway once. Uh, Did you really? In the original production of. Um Oh God! What's the place? Sigourney Weaver did the movie um, "Death and the Maiden" with uh, it was it was three actors: Glenn Close, Hackman, and Richard Dreyfuss. And uh, he was great to watch him on stage. His last actual feature film was "Welcome to Mooseport" with Ray Romano. Yeah. You are serious about retirement when you allow "Welcome to Mooseport" be to be your, your final yeah. film. But the good news <laughs> is they did a documentary for HBO about John Cazale, the yes. only actor. Who every film he ever made was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Made five. Made right. five movies. Five movies. They were yeah. all up for Best Picture: Godfather, oh. Godfather Two, Dog Deer Day Hunter. Afternoon, Deer Hunter, and uh, um, The Conversation. And um, what a career. Hackman is interviewed in that film, so technically that's Hackman's last movie. <laughs> <laughs> the John Cazale documentary is Gene Hackman's last. I know you weren't movie. waiting for my approval, but I can listen to you talk all day. I Jesus, mean, you're amazing. Really? Oh, I just don't have a life. I'm just a... <laughs> <laughs> so. Who is your favorite? Uh, now, wait, speaking. But you know what actor I would who? love to have a career as? Who? Paul, Paul Sorvino. Oh, he always gets fun roles. And yeah, like, and he's like, such a great actor. He's always I, like. I always admired Paul the Sorvino. The Cooler was my favorite role of his. He played the junkie heroin out. Oh, that's singer. right. He Paul. was like the lounge singer, and he was like. And what? In the, the cooler. cooler, I never saw the cooler. Oh, uh, really Alec Baldwin's only yeah. Oscar nomination. I, I, I like Paul Sorvino, but you know, I, I loved him as uh, Henry Kissinger and Oliver Stone's Nixon. Yeah. But I thought he should have played that character as as Paulie in Goodfellas. He should have done it as. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, stop with the joke. Stop, with, stop <laughs> with the joke. Stop with the joke. Stop with the joke. I used to love watching him on Law and Order. I'd like. Yeah. He would do little things on Law and Order if you like. You you just see him doing things. You go, wow. He's just in the moment, and this is just some TV show that's been on for 20 years. You know, yeah. I don't know. I just Michael Moriarty is amazing on that yeah. show. I yeah. mean, Michael Moriarty. It's one thing to be a sane person who can play an insane person, but Michael Moriarty is like a crazy guy yeah. who can play a sane, sane person. You're right. Beautifully. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he's so watch. insane he I mean, left the show. Oh, he was so insane he left the show. Yeah, but he's, um, he's. He said this isn't going. But his, his, he's so beautiful to watch on it because he never he's he never acts. He no. just stands there and behaves and mm, 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 a little detached, Your Honor. Mm. And yeah. it's just it's, he's so magnetic to watch. Yeah, I I I loved him when I was a kid and saw him bang the drum slowly. Oh yeah, and then Hugh the Winged Serpent. I don't know if you guys are real geeks, but the the dopest horror movie of the eighties. No, the yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. No, yeah. <laughs> no, but bang the drum slowly was Danny Aiello's first movie. Danny he plays like the third baseman or something. In that. Yeah. <laughs> I like the actors that are like Christopher Walken and James Conn, where they're just trying to remember their lines. <laughs> That's it's that not makes really sense. acting. I they're just that. like, uh, James mm, Conn. Uh, and everybody's going, wow, they're so intense. And they're just trying to remember what the I was on a subway once with Walken a couple of years ago, and he got off at my stop. So I just kind of followed him, but like, like five feet behind. Nice. It's a very Christopher Walken thing to do. Yeah, and I could see that he was expecting me. Like he had that look like, oh, this guy's going to come up and start. But I never did. And I could tell that it freaked him out. And I was like, I just freaked out Christopher Walken. That was pretty cool to me. You are a dark, dark man. Yes. I ran into him on the, he lived on the Upper West Side. I don't know if he still does. But I used to see him all the time going into the bodega. 
and I and I didn't know it was really him. And I told one of the owners uh, of the comedy club, I go, Chris, there's a guy that looks just like Christopher Walken that's always at this bodega. And they're like, it is. Huh. <laughs> like, he shook my hand uh, when I was 17 on uh, 42nd and 9th. No way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, by wow. Theater Row. Yeah. What? Yeah. The Dead and Zone was my, Dead Zone was my favorite. Agent. The Dead Zone was my, 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 was my favorite walk-in performance yeah? growing up. Yeah, still is, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> All right now. Yeah, Georgian is a big casting director. Yeah, she did the Sopranos actually. She, uh, she cast me in the Sopranos. I was on. Right she, on. She, that was pretty cool when because she uh, requested me. She'd seen me in some other auditions. She said, "Just don't hurt my husband. You keep <laughs> following him around." No, that was before I followed him around. Um, I know it's killing Richie. It, Let's just cut I know, to the can chase. We he please, wants to hear some there, there, Beatles there, songs. Yeah, the segue. There is no segue. We are 27 minutes in, and we have not talked Beatles at all. This is ridiculous. <laughs> do we do, let's do a Beatles episode? Do we do a Beatles? <laughs> we could, but I, I'd like J- to... Just pretend Mark and who, I aren't here, and you guys... Your fa- I'd like, who's your favorite interview? Do you have one? In uh, of my life? Of your life. I if mean, you say Marco Cadana, I'm leaving. No, I mean George Harrison probably means the most for well, many for many amazing. for many reasons. For many reasons. Yeah, yeah. I mean He's well, definitely I, my I, favorite Beatle, but I, I'm not like a Beatle. I told you about this you. where um I was on YouTube. I every once in a while I'll YouTube bands or things and I was YouTubing the Beatles and it said George Harrison's final or last television interview and it was you yeah and i was like i call, i'm more you're not gonna believe like, like, I, he like was so excited. in my mind you didn't know this i don't know why but i'm like <laughs> no he was gonna call john and tell him he's the last like how stupid am i <laughs> i knew that because uh they 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 called the special the last performance yes, they so did, yes, they, but uh, in my mind <laughs> <laughs> bad timing <laughs> to take a sip <laughs> Oh, no, actually, they, oh no, they, they do. do. They that, do. No, technically, they do. wasn't his final performance <laughs> because uh, a month after this, he um, he played at Carl Perkins' funeral, uh, uh, but that was private. It was his last public performance, and right. he hadn't he hadn't played. And he had, but it was his last interview. I believe he did a radio interview in the UK after that. I but don't it think said it was, last TV appearance. Last interview. TV. It See, was they his really final. Went all out. To it was his sure final TV appearance, his final TV interview, and his final public performance. Wow. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Um, he was diagnosed two months later. He he uh, he came in with Ravi Shankar. I was about to. I'll try to tell the short version of this. I was about to because uh, I have you a Ring, don't have to. I have a Ringo story that's a lot better. <laughs> I don't. I have a Paul slowly. story. I'm, I have a Paul story. I'm not allowed to tell too, while Paul's still alive. I can't tell my Paul story. Okay, but you could tell me off stage. Oh, off stage. Um, yes, off stage. I'll tell you, and then we get away from the crowd. Um, <laughs> I went. I, I, you're the fucking best. I was gonna fly to. Uh, you, you're drinking something. I was gonna fly to Lund to London to interview McCartney. Uh, and I was very excited. I'd never been to the UK before, and uh, I was all psyched to fly out. <laughs> I love on... that he's going to interview McCartney, and he's excited that he's going to the UK. Like I, that, well, I, that's I'm, awesome. Yeah, I'm just. I've, I mean, I've never been to England before this. It right. was huge for me. I've never Still, been overseas. It was. It was McCartney. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, but it was exciting for many reasons, and I liked the album too. He was promoting, and um, and then I got a call. Like, it's, uh, I was in Sam Goody on Broadway, the old Sam Goody store in Greenwich Village where I grew up, mm-hmm. and, and they said uh, we need you to go a day later. You got to go on Wednesday night instead of Tuesday. I said, Oh, I got, I'm going to lose a whole day. I, I got family. I want to go visit in the countryside. Why? Oh, we need you here for George Harrison and Robbie Shankar. I can do that. Yeah. Are you so, serious? No. <laughs> so George had produced the Chance of India album uh, for Robbie. George, of course, produced. Lots of music in his career. Mm-hmm. He produced the Hare Krishna mantra and made it a top uh, mm-hmm. twenty single. And, and um, in fact, Olivia is releasing a, an album soon of uh, Indian spiritual music that George had produced over the years that just never got released. And um, 
So uh, they came by. It was going to be like 10 minutes. We were going to get our sound bite, and he would, he would leave. And um, he was really funny. Like, like, I was so nervous. I got there, and they said I had to go to makeup, and I went to makeup, and they were like, okay, he's here. And I thought, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And they, I, they, I, I, so as soon as I was done with makeup, I'm like, can I go meet him? They said, yeah, go to the green room, say hi. I walked in. This is back during the anthology period when he still had the long hair and the beard. Yeah. And the first thing he does is jump up and say, oh, you must be the one wearing the makeup then. <laughs> and um, and I, I, I told him how much he had meant to me spiritually. Like, he, you know, again, he knows what you think, and there's no compliment you can pay him he hasn't heard. And, you know, I once, I once read an Eric Clapton interview where they asked him about Dylan, and he said, um, it's always awkward to talk to Dylan because I could never give him what he's given me. And wow. that made it a lot easier for me to meet famous people because I kept that in mind. Like, he's already heard everything, so just be chill. Right. Because um, you're just trying to take something, you know? And uh, so so he, we went out there, and we were talking about, you know, Indian music, and Ravi was there with Ravi's wife, Sukanya. And, um, and Ravi Shankar alone was amazing to meet him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, people don't realize how amazing he was. But George meant a lot to me because I was also like him raised Catholic and then as I got older my spiritual pursuits deepened and as I got away from the Catholic faith I thought I got deeper into spirituality and I learned a lot from him and about God realization and Christ consciousness and Krishna consciousness and he uh, he was someone who was about expanding your own um, spiritual horizons and parting your ass off and having a great time. And he meant a lot to me because I love the music. Um, he was you the first solo artist I loved. Uh, I, uh, uh, Cloud Nine came out when I was a teenager, and I, I played it so much, the the print came off the cassette, and it was a, a plain, clear cassette with no writing on it. Like, ah. That's how much I played the Cloud Nine record. I think it's a superb 80s piece of pop craftsmanship. And songs like Fish on the Sand is all about God. Um, mm. A lot of his songs are all about God, but they're pop songs, and you... You know, as he got older, he got better at it. I wish he kept on making music. And I was obsessed with, like, why the hell haven't you toured in 20 years? I had seen him perform live at the Bob Dylan Tribute Show, but that was the only time he'd played in America since the 70s. And this is 20 wow. years later. And I was going to get him to say, why aren't you putting out albums? Why, you know? And I want to... And so my producer was in my ear the whole time saying, get him to talk about John Lennon. Get him to talk about the Beatles. And I knew if I did that, he'd get turned off and leave. Mm -hmm. So I thought, let me talk about what I know he cares about. And it was that day that I was a bad interviewer, but I learned how to be a good one. Um, I'm terrible in the actual interview, but I think I was so raw he liked it. I began talking about what's George going to like? What's going to make him happy? Well, let's talk about God and death and meditation. What happens when you die? The soul. And he wound up staying for four hours. Holy cow. And God. at one point... Um, what a great approach in yeah. hindsight. Yeah, I've used it since then um, with interviews. You just ignore the ear? No, See, well, yeah, but also it's just you, you know that they've been asked everything. At a Sirius XM, you really know this with big celebrities. They get asked everything. So how do I let them talk about something that A, turns them on, and B, they haven't talked about 25 times on this media tour? And we were the only media stop George was doing for this album. It was just this show. They made a set for us, and we just did it. And um, so at some point then, a girl, the girlfriend of one of the crew members showed up just to visit, and she had a uh, guitar on her. She was in a band. And the guitar found its way into George's hands. Mm -hmm. And Ravi was tuning up his sitar. And they played the Indian Vedic chant of Prabhuji, which was like 20 minutes long. And when it was done, George was just kind of tuning the guitar, hanging out. And when this interview began, it was just us in the studio. By the time it ended, Rick Rubin was there. The editor of Billboard was there. Like 100 guys were in the room watching. It was crazy. It went on for hours and hours. It's where they do the Daily Show now, the same room. And um, Oh, really? Yeah. So cool. And Hell's Kitchen. And... Uh, so then George was like, taking requests. 
and someone shouted out, uh, all things must pass. And the only time he ever played it live was right there. And then he said, sing along with this one. And it was a Traveling Wilbury song that Dylan had sung, and I sang along and realized I'm the only one singing along. <laughs> I'm the only one who knows the words. I'm the only one wearing a fucking microphone. I just ruined the bootleg of this whole song with my off-pitch voice. Um, oh, that's so great. <laughs> oh, my oh. God. Yeah. <laughs> If You Belong to Me, my favorite song from that second Wilburys record. And then he did a, an unreleased song uh, called Any Road that wound up being the first track on his final posthumous album, which should have been called Any Road. Um, and it was wonderful. My knee appears in the music video. Go me. Um, and he hung out for four long hours. And wow. so many things happened, so many exchanges. They put out this 44-minute version on TV. Uh, I was in Montreal doing the comedy festival three years later, and they called four years later. They called and said, "Hey, George is really sick. Uh, we think it's nearing the end. Will you come back to New York after Montreal and uh, and, and help us do some wraparounds? And, and we're going to cut it and make it a special, ready to go when he dies." And I thought, "Well, that's ghoulish. That's really cool. But that's how it's done. Yeah. I mean, every famous old person who dies, uh, yeah. the TV obits networks have had their obits done for. When I was at ABC News and I saw the people whose obits were already produced, like <laughs> some of them lived for years, very inconsiderate. But um, <laughs> so I flew down, we cut it. Yours is there, Mark. Made it a 44-minute special, but they've never actually released the whole thing. And uh, I've tried to get it released over the years. Uh, at one point, they didn't want to compete with the Scorsese movie, uh, which I'm in for like five seconds. I'm finally in a Scorsese movie. Um, and uh, but it, it, what was great about it was um, I, I was terrible and I was ashamed and I was it, it ended we said goodbye he was beautiful to me and then I went straight to JFK got the red eye to London to and landed in London checked into the hotel hopped on a train to go see my oh. uncle in the Ipswich countryside so I have photos of me with George on Wednesday night me with Uncle Lenny my Brooklyn uncle in England on <laughs> Thursday morning and I'm wearing the same clothes <laughs> in both pictures and uh, we did the special with Paul on Saturday um when it aired, they made it like a 30-minute special called Yin and Yang, which is insulting to one of these guys, George or Robbie. One of them's the Yang, and, and uh, nobody watched it, and um, they put it on at 2 in the morning. And uh, But Beatle fans, you know, thought I sucked, and I was grieved because I met my idol, and I was a blubbering what? idiot. Why do you think you sucked? I met my idol, and I was a blubbering idiot. I was telling inappropriate jokes. Wait, I was making George? Spice Girl jokes and Rick Astley jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was not polished at all. It took me many years and a lot of therapy to realize the lack of polish is probably what he responded to and slickness because you, was not his thing. Because you got him to stay for four Ex hours. But, but again, you he know... He wouldn't do that. He's George Harrison. Let me explain how the Catholic Church works. Um, <laughs> you don't have... Uh, tw 12 years. I've yeah, done my time. there's guilt, there's shame, oh. there's Catholic. They gotta keep you somehow. So, uh, beating, you know, there's a fine line between humility and uh, nuclear self-loathing. So um, uh, that's what's so funny is because from an outsider, I whenever... watched it uh, and I thought you were great. Well, the one-hour special was, was a lot better than the thirty-minute thing they aired. But then, then um, it took me a few years to realize, hey, you know, I'm not that same person. And at one point, like George was talking about how when I first went to Los Angeles and I met Bert Lancaster, and I thought, oh, uh, he's just a man. I thought Bert Lancaster was a larger-than-life person. Realized he's just a man, and celebrity means nothing. And I'm sitting there like, really, George? Tell me more about how celebrity is empty artifice and means nothing. And uh, <laughs> it, over the years, I it taught me to forgive myself because that's what you have to do sometimes. It taught me. Um, to not be ashamed of uh, being imperfect. It got me into therapy. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, no, and it also, it cured me of ever being starstruck again. 
because um, after that, you know, like the only thing that came close for me was when I worked with Al Gore. I did like 35 hours sitting next to Al Gore on, on current for the 2012 election. And that was like, you know, you're in the room with somebody who you, you think, oh, Al Gore. Yeah. okay, And then you're actually looking Al Gore in the face, talking with him yeah. about movies and rock and roll and bullshit. You're like, oh, my God, you are in history books. So th- that was like he invented the, the Internet. He never said that. But yes, um, <laughs> yeah. he, uh, he, he never said that. And he did a very bad job of defending himself. But um, <laughs> and I can defend Al Gore because also, you know, <laughs> I can talk about the other stuff with current. And uh, I'm glad the Qataris had a good time. Um, so <laughs> so like, you know, to this day what the after effect of that George was, and I'm sorry it's such a long blown out story, but I'll, oh, I'll no, have guys, it. I'll have like heterosexual white guys walk up to me in airports and hug me saying that like that was the only time they've seen, because when they first aired it, it was just the little bits about the Beatles, but when he, here's the big thing, when he actually got sick and we recut it, then they put in all the stuff about God and what happens when you die and the soul and meditation. So the day George died, VH1 plays this around the clock, and you see George and his 20-something kid talking about the soul and death and prayer. And, you know, and so I will to this day have guys come up to me and, and thank me because they say uh, that was the only time I ever saw any serious discussion about spirituality on TV. Because my other thing is, when it comes to spirituality on TV, you get two options, atheists or imbeciles. You get non-believers or douchebags screaming at women outside clinics, which doesn't reflect America's real religious makeup, and I think we have a real spiritual hunger in this country that's not phony fundamentalism, but a real spirituality and searching, and I think that's what George was, and I think a lot of people respond to that because he never claimed to have all the answers. He was looking for the answers, and I think that that's that, how you trust to me, somebody. It's, yeah, that's everything. Is like uh, If you don't have an answer, at least if you're looking, I yeah. hate when people just make up. Trust people who are seeking the truth. Don't trust people who claim they found it and so it, it wound up being very healing for me and helped me grow up a lot and um and and it made a lot of people happy so it helped me on my journey and so george uh, will never know how much he gave me but i did meet his, olivia his widow at the um hollywood walk of fame star ceremony which paul was at and tom petty was right. at and jeff lynn and uh and she thanked me for the interview really and um and that really validated the whole wow. experience yeah yeah is that an original quote that you just did what Believe people. No, I heard that. That's something I heard somewhere. Oh, trust, okay, okay. trust anyone. No, I lo- no, I love that quote. Oh, I don't just rip off from hack oh, comics. Just... I rip off from theologians. <laughs> um, I rip off from all <laughs> kinds. Joel Olsen. I'm like not, a not I'm just like a Jackie trope, Martin. I'm a trope vending machine. Is what I want you to know. <laughs> that is all right. I so want to. I, I want to know something before we go. Um, Wait, who's going? Oh, is it time already? No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. It's not. But I think Bite your tongue, Richie. Do start another one, or do you want to stay with this? Here's the talking about fucking Trump once. This is heaven. Thank you. Here, here's the uh, here's the question. I think we have to ask John. Can you stay to do another one? If not, this is going to go a long one. Yes. <laughs> I'm good for another 20 minutes. I got to be at pit. Then let's leave this Let, on. No, no, just leave let's it on. Let's keep going. Yeah, I got to yeah, yeah. be at pit by 7:30 for the for Sean Crespo show. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, here's my question. When you interviewed McCartney, was that the first time interviewing McCartney? Oh, yeah. And do you think you did better than you would have if you didn't have Harrison a few days earlier? Or do you think you did worse? Do you think it mattered? Um, the McCartney thing, I had no control over the questions. It was a town hall, and we okay. were doing uh, viewer-submitted questions. Okay. And then a few, like Bill Clinton sent us a tape that we played for him and things mm-hmm. like that. But um, it was very, very tightly scripted. I okay, didn't so have a lot not. of wiggle room. It was a very, like, VH1. Like, it was in Bishop's Gate, where, which is referenced in Being for Benefit of Mr. Kite on Pepper. Mm-hmm. John sings about it. Paul does that live now in his set. And... Uh, 
it was a big TV production, a lot of cameras. It was timed within an inch of its life. There was not a real flexibility. But then a couple years later, um, they asked me to come and host a listening party for the Run Devil Run record at Hammerstein Ballroom. And that wound up being wild because I was on stage with Paul. And, you know, I went out there and I welcomed the crowd. And I did a set. I brought Paul out. And then um, they played the album. Paul and I went upstairs and drank and talked about the Canterbury Tales with his makeup artist for an hour and then came really? back down. And then it wound up being me and McCartney on stage for like an hour. There's great photos from this, uh, taking questions from the audience. Oh and uh, at one point, someone just said to him, Paul, uh, how, how do you like being a grandfather? And the whole room got a little tense. And Paul just went. It's fucking great, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that, and that was the night that, like, my it was fun. My brother was there, and Woody Harrelson was there, and I'll just leave it at that. Fun was had later in the evening, but um, <laughs> but uh, uh, you don't have to say anything yeah. after Woody Harrelson. No, no, no. Springsteen no, no. was there. It was a crazy night. Really? Cheryl Crow was there. Um, but uh, that was a lot more freedom. I got to play with him on stage and goof off, and and um. I can tell this part of it. Before I went on stage, I said to him, uh, Paul, your people told me that I, I have to do a better job introducing you than Madonna did at the Grammys uh, mm -hmm. last week. And he just went, that shouldn't be hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then oh, that is terrific. I will say this about him, because every time I've seen him, he's been warm and wonderful to me. And we got off and he, uh, we got off stage after like an hour doing Q&A. And I was like, Paul, you got to do a spoken word tour, man. Go out there and do yeah. storytelling. We got off stage, and he put his arms around me and hugged me and lifted me in the air. And I think it's the only time in my life a man has lifted me in the air uh, <laughs> since, since I was like, well, you? since I got out of the Navy that time. But um, <laughs> it was still like, <laughs> you don't quit, man. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was magical. And then, but it was all surreal. This was like, you know, like I had no control over it. It wasn't going to help my career. Really, it was going to give me stories to tell. But it wasn't like anything I created as an artist it was just like oh I get to do this f fun cool thing it'll be an anecdote um, but it, it was great it was lovely it, and, and it, it really was like you know Buzz Aldrin said after he walked on the moon how could he not be an alcoholic when he came home because once you've done that where, where do you go how do yeah. you top that high and I've thought about that a lot because like I had these experiences meeting these men I idolized and I realized okay that's great. But if your whole life is about meeting people you idolize, it's not really your life, is it? It's theirs. So right. it, it, now, it gave me a big gift. And ever I've since then. I've never been true. to the moon. I can't explain my alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got two quick uh, questions, two-parters. And they're the same question, but different topic. Have you always been this spiritual? Um, I know your No, I used to be religious. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> I know your history, your family history, and our listeners don't, but have, has this been something you've always been into, spirituality and religion? Yeah, but I mean, uh, I, think it's, I think it's something that evolves. You know, my, my father was a, I'll make this, my, 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 this, my father was a Franciscan brother. Um, he wore the robes and the rope belts and, um, and taught history uh, to Catholic boys in Brooklyn. My mother was a nun from the South, in the segregated South. She, uh, the convent put her through nursing school and she went to the convent right out of high school. The convent made her a nurse, sent her to Africa, to Malawi, to work with lepers in the jungle. And my dad was in love with her for 10 years, um, finally got her to leave. My father always felt that wow. um, the same love that brought him into a life of service was the same love that drew him out of the clergy and into loving this woman. And that his experience in my opinion, became that he was going to worship God through this woman. One of the greatest gifts I had was having a father who was madly in love with his wife. It was just, it was a good thing to be around as a child, to be around a man who was crazy 
in love with his wife, who had once made a promise to God he would never have these feelings, and then had them, and then realized those feelings came from God as well. And my mother, who had taken a vow of poverty, chastity, and servitude, um, and then left it all behind. And, you know, I, I was in Africa, and then, like, within a couple of years, she's, you know, on Long Island, raising <laughs> kids and not knowing anybody. Um, but my father was an example of how your spiritual life can evolve. He always stayed Catholic, but, um, but you know, uh, disagreed with the Pope on everything. Yeah. Um, you know, like, we, my dad was the most liberal dad. He was a history teacher and really into politics. It's why I got into politics. because That I, was going to be the second part. I of wanted to please my dad, and I sucked at sports. So it became <laughs> politics and religion. And... Um, <laughs> He did a dance for all the listeners yes. out there. And like my, my he can't dance. Either. Believe it was the twist. Oh, I can't dance. Sports and dance. My, the my. white chubby checker in really good shape. <laughs> chubby checker's in really good shape. He's yeah. like he, he's like looks like he's fifty. Um, he really does. He hit on my intern. Um, <laughs> we we uh, so I saw my dad evolve right spiritually and like he always stayed Catholic. But I, I, I kind of feel like they say the largest growing religious group in America are Mormons. I think it's actually people who were raised religious and now consider themselves spiritual because they have that yearning, but they don't trust guys in dresses and funny hats who are giving sex advice. And, and you know, they don't trust the hypocrisy of organized... And I got nothing against organized religion. Fundamentalism, I hate. We have a lot of people in this country who are not Christian. They are evangelical supremacists. They reject the teachings of Jesus. They pretend Jesus cared about a lot of shit Jesus never mentioned. And so I became, like, when I stopped kissing the ring, uh, my, my dad retired down south, and he was teaching community college um, in, in Norfolk near the naval base. He was, like, teaching, you know, guys who thought Oliver North was a good person. And my dad's like, yeah, arming both sides of the Iran-Iraq war. Let's break that down. Um, <laughs> but I went to a lecture my dad gave on so Martin good. Luther and why Martin Luther quit the church and his 95 theses and when it was done i said dad so many of those issues are your grievances with the church like why why aren't we lutheran and he he couldn't answer me but by then i had had it with you know the way the catholic church uh deals with women because none of that's based in the bible it's not i believe there were 15 apostles and not 12 but the men who wrote it said nope 12 apostles three groupies but jesus appeared to those women and blah 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 uh the gay stuff none of that's from jesus the birth control stuff the sex hang-ups uh the abortion none of it's from jesus the bible's not anti-abortion god is actually the least pro-life character in the entire book um <laughs> so like I, I i was like all right i want to get deeper into this and i became sort of an amateur theologian and i became a seeker rather than a devotee of one of god's unauthorized fan clubs so like i I'm I'm a weird character in debates because, like, I will argue against the fundamentalists, but not from the atheist point of view. Because, again, all you see on TV are atheists and douchebags screaming at women outside clinics. So, like, Bill Maher would have me on to debate, like, Jerry Falwell, which I did in my 20s, uh, uh, David wow. Duke. Um, I had the guy, John, uh, I mean, Bill Donahue of the Catholic League on my current show, and I had him on for half an hour, and I, I finally got him to admit at the very end that Jesus never said a single thing against gay people. You know, like, uh, my whole thing has been thump Bible thumpers with the Bible. And I it's kind of dodgy as a comic to do this, and it's kind of dodgy as a broadcaster or political guy to do this, but no one's doing it. My book agents uh, do not want me to do the book I want to do. Um, they want a poignant memoir of my parents' love. And I'm like, no, I'm going to do a book about how you can't be a right-wing fundamentalist and claim you follow fucking Jesus, because you can't. And I'm going to do it with jokes, so fuck you. Because um, <laughs> I don't see my point of view anywhere. So, like, I, And I, I think that there's a, a real spiritual hunger. I think that organized religion um, has 
fail to evolve with culture, and um, some of them do, but most of them don't. And I think that uh, there's a lot of people out there who like God, they like Jesus, they don't like what these unauthorized fan clubs do. And so um, that's the weird kind of comedic ground I tread, because I like to try and do material about, you know, what's the Sodom and Gomorrah story really all about? Because it's actually pretty fucking funny, and it's... (laughs) Spoiler alert, it's actually not about consensual relationships with men. It's about gang rape of angels. Um, But from there, (laughs) we get, you can't have a cake. So, you know, it's like... uh, I would would love to see the guy who went to see him because he was so good on America's Funniest Home Videos. Oh, dude, I came back (laughs) to... What the hell is this? At one point, I was headlining Caroline's while that show was on the air, and, like, the flash bulbs when I first got on stage, and then they were just walking out after 15, 20 minutes, yeah. Yeah, but oh, to fun. me, like, you know, I was a Carlin fiend, and I thought that was great. Like, every time I, I would go I to Vegas, the first thing I would do in Vegas man. would be to go see Carlin. Like, anytime I had to go to Vegas for any work or VH1 or anything, celebrity golf, first thing I do. Is he at Caesars? When? And the best thing about seeing Carlin at Caesars was watching um, the people walk out in droves. I would go by myself just to watch how people would walk out. They'd go for the celebrity name. He'd tell dirty jokes, yeah. funny, HBO yeah. special. He'd do his material. They'd walk out, and in the end, like, everyone who was left was just, it was like a Dylan show. They were on their you feet. You know, I met him at Dangerfields. I told this story once on, yeah. this, on the, so I won't go through the whole story. I met him at Dangerfields, and one of the comics went up and didn't do well. And after the show, the comic was sitting alone, and we were all talking to Carlin. And Carlin, the show was still going on, and Carlin looked at the guy, and then he turned and he looked at the audience, and he gave the audience the finger. And the guy went, oh, my God, I just can't believe you saw me do that badly. And Colin goes, you think you did badly? And he goes, I know I did. He goes, I've had whole arenas walk out on me. <laughs> he said, there's 200 people here. None of them left. When arenas walk out on you, then you know. That. And I thought that was so cool. I love that story because, yeah. like, one of the things that I've always believed in, and um, I, I, I didn't really know him. I met him a little bit. I mean... Well, sort of. I mean, By the way, yeah, I, I killed on that show. But anyway, <laughs> I shook his hand a couple of times, you know, like, yeah. and I, I but um, I'm good friends with his daughter. And I've always said to her, I don't believe your dad was this nihilist. He would go on TV and say, I'm rooting for the comet. And you listen to those last few records. And again, I think you can start with with jamming in New York in 1991. I mean, I just think from like, that's where he stops being a great comic and becomes a fucking shaman. Yeah, I right? think He's I a love prophet. his later years. From, ni- from jamming in New York onwards and then back in town and then all those it's bad for you, cr- uh, complaints and grievances, uh, uh, um, life is worth losing, all that stuff is great. But he's cranky and hates the human race and wants the whole world to end and hates fucking people. Right, right, and, right. Right. and I always thought that's his persona. He's not right. the real guy. I always heard about the guy who helped out homeless people, who was kind to young comics, who was oh. so generous. And I, I said to Kelly, your dad couldn't have been that nihilistic. If he, if he really hated people, he wouldn't have written such humanistic, beautiful essays and translated them into hilarious monologues. Right. And she's like, yeah, he didn't hate people. That was the character he played. He right. loved people. He was a great Christian. Wow. wow. Now, oh you shared with your dad. I'm going to share you with my dad. <laughs> oh. Share me with your dad. Now, <laughs> it's a little different. He's been married three times, divorced three times, complete opposite of your father, and I was the best man in the second and third wedding. That's kind of cool. My dad was my best man. Really? Yeah. But I was, uh, I'm very superstitious, so when the third one came, I was like, are you sure I'm not going to jinx this? He goes, don't worry, it's not you. Four years later, divorced again. (laughs) Well, I get that. I mean, look, it's like, (laughs) we're the, like, it's crazy, right? Like, monogamy is a beautiful concept. Yeah. But we are the only species in the history of this planet, of all the billions of creatures that have lived here, all the billions of species, we're the only one, mammals, insects, lizards, we're the only one 
to choose monogamy against our nature and then go through all manner of suffering, torment, and Hold guilt on, when it's hard to wife? pull off. No, no, no. <laughs> Listen, you make a promise, you keep your promise. Uh, that, that's the deal, right? Like, Or else return the fucking wedding gifts. But, but to me, it's like there's, there's six species of mammal that mate for life naturally, right? <laughs> Foxes, wolves, elephant shrews, beavers, gibbons, and the dick-dick. Yes, beavers and the dick-dick are monogamous. Um, <laughs> most I've been called a dick-dick quite, quite all, a few times. All throughout the mammal you kingdom, just gave me some homework. <laughs> all throughout the mammal kingdom, most mammals mate for one season and then move on. Charlie Sheen. So it's like... <laughs> When it's hard to pull it off, like, may, and maybe because we mate for life now and we're trying to do it, that we are changing our DNA. Maybe we're changing our evolution. Maybe in a thousand generations, because of our attempts at monogamy now, babies will be born biologically predisposed to mate with one partner for life. It's possible. It's beautiful. Not necessarily natural. And yet we go through all this pain and grief. And I, monogamy, don't, it's one of the reasons why we lasted as a species. Forcing people to stay together and raise these fucking kids is why right. we have a culture and a civilization. But like religion, it's going to have to evolve because we've outgrown it to some degree. And it's, it's, and again, you're, you're in a marriage, you made a promise, you keep your promise. What I'm saying is I think it's, the playing field's going to change because we go through all this torment when it's hard to pull off. And it's hard to pull off because we're the only animal ever to try to resist our biological nature because culture told us that's not an option. Right. So I, I have compassion because it's hard to pull off. It's crazy. Uh, it can work. It can be beautiful. And some people, you all know people who just are monogamous and they're wonderfully happy and it's wonderful. But like in the case of your dad, I don't doubt that he loved all these women very much at the time he married them. Including my mother. Including your mother. I don't <laughs> doubt that he loved her. And he probably still loves them all to some degree. Yeah. In his own special way. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I get that, too. He's the wild card, All right. Baby. You can't go without... I'm trying to just make you go. feel better because you have three broken homes. That's all. I don't really mean any of this. So. <laughs> Dude, I've had no, so no, much No, no. You fun. said Ringo, and I have to have the Ringo story. You said the Ringo story's better. God, really? Is there time for this? You don't want to... It's up to you. It's up to you. I'll tell it... Okay, I'll tell it quick. Ringo. Uh, I love Ringo. I have enough Ringo Star solo albums to end a marriage. Um... <laughs> I wish you would call me because I can help his fucking set list. Yeah, seriously, no one wants to hear boys, yeah. Ringo. No one wants to ever hear boys. Yeah, Stop. You're no one right. It's I, creepy. We can I handle saw, a 77 year old man singing You're 16, You're Beautiful, and You're Mine, right. but not talking about boys. Stop. He had some really great songs that I, I go, why isn't he doing this? Why isn't he doing that? And, uh, well, yeah, he came. And the one thing I wanted to ask him at VH1 was like, okay, the two songs you wrote with the Beatles were right. Octopus's Garden right. and Don't Pass Me By. Right. Why are those not in your act? Right. Why do you do. You know, every, everything. Why do you do like, like freaking? Uh, um, I, I mean, uh, I want to be your lover or boys or you know these other songs right, right. or you oh, know the Carl Perkins Act Naturally. No one gives a shit about Act Naturally. They want to hear, you know, uh, uh, your song. And his people just said to me, "Yeah, he tried them. It didn't work." But if you listen to the, there is a great Ringo Starr live album. It's VH1 Storytellers. It's wonderful. Like, um, I'm such a freak. Like uh, the best McCartney live album I would say is probably. Um, uh, uh, Tripping the Live Fantastic, although I do love um, The Unplugged. Uh, John Lennon has a couple decent live albums. Yeah. The George Harrison Live in Japan with Clapton is beautiful. Oh, tremendous. And uh, Ringo Starr, VH1 Storytellers, great. He does I Octopus's Garden. No one's heard it. He does Octopus's Garden, and he does Don't Pass Me By, and it's great. And it's just Ringo with his band. It's not like all-stars jumping up and doing a thing. And I saw the first all-star band 
when I was a kid, and it was like Levon Helm and, and Billy yeah. Preston and, and Nils Lofgren, Jim Keldner, uh, Dr. John, it, it, Clarence Clemens was in that band. It was an amazing band. Um, so Ringo comes in to do a top 10 countdown, and I wasn't working that day, but I went in because I wanted to be in the studio and watch, and um, I, I brought my Ringo Starr program from that first tour with uh, Levon Helm and Rick Danko of the band and you know Joe Walsh, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Mitch, this guy Mitch, was the... Um, Mitch was the uh, talent coordinator, and I wasn't allowed to talk to Ringo. I had to talk to Mitch. So I'm in the room, and I'm like, Mitch, can I give him my program? Give me your program, and I'll ask him to sign it. Ah, okay. And uh, so I did. You know, and I'm like, Mitch, promise me he'll sign it? He goes, yeah, yeah, he'll, I'll get him to sign it. And um, so I talked to Ringo's people, and I got, at one point, he asked for a glass of water. And I brought him the glass of water, handed it to him. He looked me in the eye, and he said, thanks. So that was my connection. And <laughs> when it was all said and done... Um, I went to Mitch and I, I said, hey, uh, is, is Ringo still here? Oh, no, he left. Oh, can I have my program? Oh, shit. Ringo took your program. And I realized my Beatle merch got stolen by a Beatle. <laughs> he left the studio with the program that I'd had for like 10 years schlepping around. And I bet he sold it on eBay. <laughs> no, I said, I said, that's a, I got mad. I like that's some bullshit and I want my program back. Mitch. <laughs> You're on it. He goes, well, I don't know what to do. I said, Mitch, call Ringo. You put me. You told me to give you my program, Mitch. You call Ringo. You get my program back, and I want it signed. And Mitch said, I'll do everything I can. About a month later, it got shipped back, and it was signed. Wow. To Mitch. Love, Ringo. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, Mitch, guys, that's drinks, jokes, and storytelling. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. gentlemen. This is really fun. Last call. Thanks for listening to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling.